to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Hussein Haqqani, Director for South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute, join us to discuss South Asian Muslims and the American experience. Ambassador Haqqani will speak for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Ambassador Hussein. Hakani. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure uh, to join all of you today to discuss the South Asian Muslim experience uh, in America. Uh, we must understand that uh, when the word Muslim is mentioned in the United States, there is an assumption uh, that uh, somehow it denotes people of Middle Eastern origin. Uh, but the world's largest uh, Muslim populations are not in the Middle East. Uh, Indonesia, which is in, the, in East Asia, is the world's largest Muslim country. Then there is Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, all with large uh, Muslim populations. In fact, even today, 20% of America's Muslims are of South Asia origin, and 35% of those American Muslims who were born outside of the United States uh, come from South Asia. Uh, the largest, of course, segment comes from Pakistan, but there are large Muslim populations whose home of origin is uh, Afghanistan, India, or Bangladesh. Now, the South Asian Muslim experience in America actually goes back quite a while ago. Uh, there was a very interesting article uh, not long ago, I think, in The Atlantic, uh, about somebody who earned the nickname Hot Tamale King uh, in a place... Uh, in, in a small town in northeastern Wyoming. Uh, this gentleman had come to the United States uh, as, a, um, as a crew member on a ship that sailed from what was then British India. Uh, he came from the border area between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And in 1909, he decided that he wanted to stay on in the United States. And he, saw, uh, he, he, he sold uh, tamales uh, so he, he was a person of, uh, a Muslim person of what was then the British Indian subcontinent, uh, later on became Pakistan, who ended up in uh, the United States along the West Coast and then eventually moved inwards into Wyoming uh, and uh, ran a small uh, Mexican cuisine restaurant uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Northeastern Wyoming. Uh, so the trickle of Muslims from South Asia uh, was people like Hotmali King, but uh, the real flow started after the independence of British India and the creation of the two countries of Pakistan and India. And uh, uh, Pakistan uh, signed up as an ally of the United States very early on. So that facilitated Pakistani professionals coming to America uh, either as students of our postgraduate studies. And that is where the real seeds of the large, large South Asian Muslim diaspora started. Uh, and uh, by and large, uh, the, uh, the people who decided to make America their home uh, wanted to be assimilated. So it wasn't unusual uh, to find somebody called Jim Faruqi or, uh, or, or, or Sid Khan which was essentially an adaptation of their names uh, to what they thought was the uh, way to do it uh, in America. Uh, Sid was Shahid when he was born or when he left Pakistan. 
uh, Jim was Jamshed, uh, and, and, and many of them uh, were primarily professionals. Uh, if we move forward a little bit, by the 70s and 80s, the diaspora, uh, big South Asian Muslim diaspora started becoming a little wider. Uh, the large Muslim population in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh uh, and now Telangana, uh, which had this princely state called Hyderabad, many of its citizens uh, decided that instead of moving to Pakistan, uh, they should move to the United States, especially if they were skilled professionals. And so we have now a interesting South Asian Muslim diaspora, uh, many of whom are professionals uh, or even entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, there is Shahid Khan, for, and some of them are very famous, well known in their respective fields, very successful. Uh, there's Shahid Khan who owns one of the, uh, uh, I think it's uh, an American football team in Jacksonville. Uh, he started his career uh, working for General Motors and uh, uh, he developed some kind of uh, bumper uh, for, for motor cars, which he patented and is now a uh, billionaire. Uh, then there is uh, Safi Qureshi, who made his money in IT. Uh, there is Frank Islam, whose original name was Shah Islam. He's from India. Um, but he did, adopted the name of his teacher, uh, who was some... Yet they all maintained their Muslim identity. And here is where uh, the South Asian connection uh, became a little weak because as the Muslim uh, sort of diaspora generally needed places of worship, uh, places of, 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 of education for their children, religious education for their children, they had to create a broader connection with the other Muslim communities and primarily the Muslims of the Middle East. And so mosques started sprouting in various parts of America. Uh, but uh, the uh, majority of South Asian Muslims in America uh, essentially uh, wanted to be part of American life while keeping their religion uh, uh, until fairly late. Uh, it was the desire to have religious education for children that made a lot of them turn to Islamic centers and mosques uh, that were coming up throughout the United States. As of now, for example, we have 12,000 doctors in America. So America had a shortage of doctors in the 70s and 80s and opened its doors uh, to people with a medical degree from another country, provided they passed an examination here, did, some, uh, did their residency, they could practice medicine here. And a lot of people from South Asia took advantage of it. In fact, even today, there are about 52,800 medical doctors, physicians in America who are from India and 12,000 from Pakistan. The ones from Pakistan are 98% Muslim and the ones from India also have a sprinkling of Muslims among them. And these doctors, uh, because of the way the immigration policy was structured, had to serve in rural and small communities uh, to be able to be fast-tracked for American citizenship. Uh, and, and many of them volunteered to do that. They still made more money than they would have, back, uh, would have made back home. They had greater freedom. Uh, they liked the life here. But they wanted to retain uh, their culture. Uh, 
The Middle Eastern groups uh, also, I mean, a lot of Middle Eastern uh, Muslims in the United States initially uh, did not intend to bring Middle Eastern politics or, 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 or even religion, uh, religious fights uh, to North America. Only in the 1980s did this, uh, what we face today as radical Islamism became a phenomenon. And that became primarily because at that time, uh, the US government was supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, and the religious uh, institutions that were being created in uh, North America, mosques, uh, religious schools, Islamic schools, they needed teachers. And the teachers overwhelmingly came from the Middle East. So here, South Asian Islam, which has always been very diverse, uh, for example, the Mughals, who were the large, last large Muslim empire in uh, 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 India, uh, they had to uh, make a lot of compromises with the majority of the population that remained Hindu. And, uh, and, and, and that resulted in a lot of syncretic practices within Islam cultural syncretism, uh, where you did not essentially follow uh, the letter, but more the spirit uh, of, of, of the faith. Um, now, the more austere version of Islam that was practiced, say, for example, in Saudi Arabia, uh, what can be called Wahhabi Islam, uh, was the major option available uh, when you wanted to send your child to a Sunday school. And therefore, uh, the children and the younger generation was exposed to a more um, puritanical version of the faith. As that puritanical version was hijacked by more radical groups, the younger generation had greater chances of being exposed to that. So now they had, so a lot of people had to make a choice of breaking all ties uh, to the, the structure of, uh, the, the, the infrastructure of faith that had evolved, uh, or uh, basically accept the practices that their teachers were teaching rather than the ones that their parents had been exposed to. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11, this phenomenon was debated uh, widely in America. Uh, the Middle East Forum played an important role uh, also in uh, making Americans aware of the, <coughs> of the radical streak uh, within the Muslim community. Uh, but the disorganized community, and by the way, an overwhelming majority uh, of Muslims in America, yeah, both of South Asian origin and of other parts, uh, or from other parts, are not part of organized religious life in America. But those who were, were en all ended up being in one, moving in one direction. So the last two decades have been relative, uh, have been uh, decades of argument. It's very interesting. There are many interesting uh, uh, dimensions to the South Asian Muslim diaspora. South Asian Muslims, uh, up until the late 1980s, uh, overwhelmingly voted Republican uh, because, uh, because, because they had left countries uh, where there was um, a streak of socialism, which they wanted to escape. So they all ended up coming here. And as soon as they became citizens and got the right to vote, ended up voting Republican, in many cases, being very strongly active within the uh, party organizations, uh, uh, in local Republican organizations. Uh, a lot of that started changing after 9-11. Uh, the American discourse after 9-11 uh, did not often make a distinction uh, between radical Islamists 
and regular Muslims. Uh, and it was very difficult, to be fair, from an American point of view, to be able to understand another faith's internal conflicts and, and, and divisions. Uh, and we had uh, also uh, some backlash. Uh, and so the Muslim community kind of started becoming more inward. And the South Asian Muslims uh, were not exempt from that. Even now, by the way, I would argue that most South Asian Muslims uh, uh, have assimilated into American life. Uh, you have uh, South Asian Muslim comedians uh, on, on American television because that's what these kids wanted to be. You have an entire generation of uh, uh, IT professionals, and then you have, of course, uh, the physicians and college professors, uh, all of whom uh, retain a, a, a Muslim identity as faith, but have predominantly an American culture in their day-to-day -day life. Uh, if you see their, uh, uh, the, the, the women of their families, uh, you wouldn't be able to, uh, in, a, in a mall, for example, you wouldn't find them uh, very distinct. Perhaps some of them would cover their head, uh, but uh, they would not otherwise be identifiable as Muslim until they spoke their name or said something else about identifying themselves as Muslim. Uh, the post 9-11 environment was very interesting, uh, uh, or I would say disturbing as well. Uh, we heard stories about, um, about uh, uh, crackdowns on, uh, on uh, um, illegal uh, immigrants, uh, but those were not always portrayed to the Muslim community as, it, as, as, uh, Ill, as immigration enforcement. Uh, they were presented to it as anti-Muslim acts, and some were. Uh, there were uh, uh, some children, for example, uh, came up with very funny uh, responses. Uh, there is a famous joke in the Muslim community that this child from Bangladesh or, or of Bangladeshi parents was confronted in a, a small town school uh, in Tennessee uh, by other children. Children can sometimes be very cruel to each other. Uh, and they said, why don't you go back to where she came from? And she turned around and said, my dad says we can't go back to Connecticut because this child had never been to Bangladesh. Her home was in Connecticut and her father had relocated to Tennessee uh, for his work. And so th that kind of uh, sort of feeling or sense that maybe our community is under attack uh, led a lot more Muslims uh, to change their politics uh, and uh, also uh, to change their uh, uh, original views of uh, about assimilation, uh, and 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 that is what we see happening uh, today. Um, uh, I think that a lot of South Asian Muslims, uh, if, who are in the United States, uh, would would identify more as Americans uh, than as uh, citizens of the countries of their origin. But if you attend the conventions of organizations. Uh, that purport to represent them, uh, you will find that there is a very strong undercurrent of trying to organize all Muslims. First of all, portray them all as a monolith, and second, to organize them exclusively around uh, religion and then also around a certain definition of faith. Islam is the faith of more than uh, a billion people around the world. Uh, it has many sects and uh, denominations. Uh, it has many subcultures, uh, but 
at a political level, some people want to identify it as a monolith, both within the Muslim community and outside. And so there has been, uh, in, my way, uh, in my view, uh, a, um, the, the emergence of a uh, communitarian identity which did not exist, say, for example, up until the 80s or even uh, the 90s. And, uh, and that has been somewhat detrimental uh, to the process of assimilation of America's uh, Muslims of South Asian origin. Uh, right now, I would say that the basic distinction is between the professionals, uh, the college professors, the um, physicians, the IT professionals, the entrepreneurs, the lawyers, the university educated, and then those who are not that privileged. And I think that the, while, 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 while radical ideas can appeal to both, uh, I think that the professionals uh, have a intellectual desire to assimilate and understand that they have moved countries and therefore they, and they have taken an oath of loyalty to the United States and should remain uh, sort of committed to the idea of becoming Americans. But then there are those who are here uh, a, uh, and who have not realized the American dream uh, and have a yearning for returning back home. And when they come to the uh, Islamic centers, to the mosques, uh, then uh, that is sometimes translated into more radical ideas. In the last few years, law enforcement has been able to uh, weed out a lot of the radical uh, activists, but the uh, radical ideology, I don't think, has been uh, completely uprooted or, or diminished. Uh, the subcontinent, the biggest group in the subcontinent uh, with a radical Islamist ideology uh, is a group called the Jamaat Islamists, the analog of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood of the Middle East. And they have uh, built an, an, an infrastructure, uh, which includes uh, a national organization called the Islamic Circle for North America, uh, parallel to the Islamic Society for North America, which, is, uh, uh, which has its origins in uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, they uh, run, uh, they, they work in tandem with the Muslim Brotherhood and run uh, Islamic schools, Islamic charities, and Islamic centers uh, that uh, uh, basically focus on the political dimension of Islam rather than the spiritual one. Uh, I think that that is the layout. Uh, now, as a South Asian Muslim myself, uh, who has been in the United States for 20 years, I would say that uh, the South Asian Muslim experience in America has been one of um, uh, tremendous diversity. Uh, many of us have uh, differences among ourselves. No two South Asian Muslims are necessarily exactly alike. Uh, the Afghans speak Dari and Pashto. The Pakistanis speak Pashto, Punjabi, Baluchi, Sindhi, and Urdu. Uh, the Indians, likewise, have multiple languages. And uh, similarly, culture, cuisine, everything, there are many differences. So the only common factor is the faith. And, uh, and while that creates opportunities uh, for coming together, uh, uh, it is 
it, ha it, it has limited, uh, uh, limited utility as a unifier. So a very diverse community uh, spread all over the United States, almost all, each one of the 50 states has a, South, uh, has a Muslim community and it has a South Asian Muslim community. Uh, let me just stop here. I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions based on what I have said. I just tried to give an overview and then we will uh, sort of uh, take a deeper dive based on your questions. Thank you all very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We do have quite a few questions coming in. The first one we have is, uh, since all translations of the Quran are considered to be interpretations, could this explain why South Asian and other moderate Muslims are intimidated to challenge the native Arabic speaking Islamists on theological issues? Uh, I would answer uh, with a qualified yes. Uh, yes, that is one of the factors. In fact, all non-Arabic speakers uh, uh, tended to be intimidated sometimes, but, but the fact of the matter is that in the normal life of people, theological argumentation is not a very significant factor. Uh, you, you, you don't wake up, or not everybody wakes up every morning thinking of what are the theological arguments about X, Y, and Z. Uh, most people want to get on with their lives. Uh, make a living for their family, etc., etc. So basically, it is a um, uh, it is only those who have a yearning to understand theological uh, arguments uh, that end up uh, in the environment in which the Arabic speakers are considered as more knowledgeable because they have the ex uh, they have access to the earliest texts because all the early texts on, on Islam, uh, including the holy book, but also other uh, uh, books and works of reference are all in Arabic. So people do get intimidated. Uh, for, the, for, for the, shall I say, the Friday prayer Muslim, the, the, the Muslim who attends Friday prayers and only goes for high holidays, uh, they are not easily intimidated, uh, but the ones who do want to take a, uh, sort of more theological position and understand and get into this, uh, they find themselves at disadvantage because of the language. Mm, understood. Thank you. Can you provide background on Uraj Rahman, the lawyer who threw the Molotov cocktail? And I'm sorry if I had the bad pronunciation on that. Um, I really have no idea about him per se, but my uh, my view would be that he through the Molotov cocktail, not because of Islam, because I'm not sure whether he was even Muslim, they, his, one of his partners was. Uh, I think that the uh, issue there is more left-wing ideology uh, than it is Islam. But there is, a, there is a crossover these days all over the world, because as the left uh, or the hard left in the world uh, kind of declined after the fall of communism, in many cases they have uh, adopted as uh, a cause uh, the radical Islamists uh, because they think that at least they are resisting quote unquote uh, American empire. So the you know you find American uh, British Trotskyist writing defense for the Taliban, for example, uh, why the Taliban are a force for liberation, uh, uh, which uh, anybody who is not totally um, uh, sort of drunk on the Kool Aid. Uh, of, uh, of, of a Trotskyist ideology would find absurd. 
but uh, I think that 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 the 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 left influence there or the hard left influence is more responsible for radicalism than the Islamic influence per se, in some cases. Understood. So what do you think what it would take for an Islamic reformation to arise in the, the Muslim mosques in America? Well, for, for one thing, I think that uh, uh, um, it would be a question of, uh, uh, of, of, of leadership. Uh, and of resources. Uh, the ideas are all, out, are all out there now. I think that enough has been written by some scholars on uh, what reform or what a reformed approach uh, to uh, an Islamic life would be like. Uh, the question is, can they compete with the organized structures that already exist? Uh, that, so, there are two, so there are two groups we are talking about that are distinct. One are traditionalists, people who say we need to just follow Islam as it has been handed down to us. They are an obstruction to reform because they think that embracing modernity is somehow turning your back on your faith. Um, these are people who insist on dressing a certain way, saying a certain, certain phrases a certain way, etc. Et but they are not necessarily radical because they do not embrace a political or a politicized version. Uh, of, 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 of the faith. Then there are what can be described as the uh, Islamic uh, revivalists. Uh, they really believe that Islam is uh, a political ideology and because it's a political ideology, therefore it has to establish an Islamic state. And if an Islamic state has to be uh, created, it doesn't matter whether you live as a non-Muslim minority in a, uh, as a Muslim minority in an overwhelmingly non-Muslim country or whether you live as a Muslim in a Muslim country, everywhere you have to try and create uh, the dominance of Islam. That idea has been actually challenged by a lot of Muslim scholars through Islamic texts, saying that Islam insisted, while Islam's evolution involved empires uh, as a faith, it's, but the holy book never describes Islam as the, uh, as, as the faith of an empire. And so the faith may have created or led to empires, but it is not meant only to be tied to a empire of faith. Second, the uh, very idea uh, that uh, Islam must be dominant everywhere is not only unrealistic, but also contrary to the world that we live in. Uh, for example, initially a lot of Islamic, and, and there's a very good book on it by an Islamic scholar from Iraq who was here in the United States. It's about how Islamic jurisprudence needs to change because in the old days, either Muslims lived in Muslim empires where the rulers were Muslims, or the, um, even when the majority was non-Muslim, it was still the Muslim who was making the, the laws and the rules. However, now Muslims are protected. Their freedom of religion is protected in non-Muslim countries. And so Muslims have an obligation to extend the same equality to their brethren in other countries. The United Arab Emirates use that as the justification for allowing uh, Jews to resume uh, 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 religious activity in the United Emir Arab Emirates recently, to allow Hindus to build a temple, saying you can't apply 7th century rules 
to a 21st century life. If Muslims are getting permission to build mosques in Europe, where most people are either Christian or agnostic or atheists, uh, why should Muslims deny people of other faith the same permission? So those debates are and have been taking place. The only problem is getting traction and essentially getting somebody with power behind them because these are ideas in books. These are ideas that people like me are reading and discussing and debating with others. I run a study circle of other Muslims who, and, and recommend such readings for them so that they understand faith differently. But basically, I do not control a television outlet uh, like Al Jazeera, uh, which only has radical Islamists espousing their version of faith on it. So that's what, that's what will change. But let me just say, that knowing the community as well as I do, while every now and then there is reason for pessimism, overall, there are many, many reasons for optimism also, that there are people in the community who will continue to resist the radical ideas as long as they have support of reasonable people outside the community who do not make it and who do not allow this to be made into a us versus them. The moment you do an us versus them, then the us becomes the radicals, because then there's no room for somebody like me. Because then the argument becomes, you know what? You're irrelevant. They, they, they are coming for all of us. And you are either their uh, instrument or you're irrelevant from our community's perspective. And in the US, for example, uh, there have been revolts in certain mosques. There was a famous Cleveland mosque incident way back in 2003, I think, 2002, something like that where the community just turned around the preacher, uh, uh, turned around and demanded the removal of the preacher because they said, we come here to pray, not to hear the preacher talk about American imperialism and how bad Israel is. Well, thank you. Along those lines, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our webinar. Can you suggest some books or articles or resources for those who want to learn more about South Asian Muslim communi communities in the US? Well, we publish at Hudson Institute a journal called Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. Uh, this is an important uh, uh, piece. Uh, 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 it, it's an important journal that has pieces and articles on uh, the entire Muslim community across the world. And it often has interesting pieces on South Asian Muslims, as well as Muslims from other parts of the world. And what are the currents of th uh, thought and, uh, and, and what are the major issues and debates that are currently taking place amongst them. All right. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come, come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Ambassador Hakani, for speaking with Thank us. You. Thanks a lot. And I'm sorry I speak too much. So therefore, we didn't uh, get as many questions in. But I've noted all the questions that have been asked on the, uh, on the right, written uh, thing. And I will try and answer them in my future articles and maybe a future discussion. Oh, wonderful to hear. Thank you. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings for next week uh, coming out over the weekend. And thank you all for joining us and hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.